Well, we're looking at that uh, passage that Tim read for us earlier in the service from Hebrews 10. So if you'd like to open your Bibles, you've got one with you. It's page 1208, 1208. Page 1208. I'd like to read verses 23 and 24. The writer says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good works. Actually, in that passage, there are five lettuces. It's a great family service talk to line up five letters in front of everybody. And there are five in that passage. You may like to see what they are another time. I'm only going to look at three in a moment or two. I don't know if you know the story of a, uh, of a son who was lying in bed fast asleep uh, one Sunday morning. His mother bursts into the room and says, it's time to get up and go to church. The son moans and says, I don't want to go to church. And she says, you've got to go to church. And he says, I don't want to go to church. Why should I? Three reasons, she says. First, it's Sunday. And we always go to church on Sunday. Secondly, you're 43 and you should know better. <laughs> and thirdly, you're the vicar. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever felt like that. You wake up on a Sunday morning and you think, I don't want to go to church. I'd much prefer to stay in bed, read the papers, put the feet up, have a leisurely cup of coffee and breakfast. I've been busy all week. I'm dog tired. What on earth is the point of going to church? Why should I go to church? and have to listen to somebody making me feel guilty or bored or maybe both. We all have. Maybe some of us this morning felt exactly that. Even if we didn't, I bet some of our kids did. So it begs the question, why do we come to church? What is the point of it? Some of us here come every week. Some every couple of weeks. Some maybe less often. But why? What's it all for? Well, today, as we say, we're calling Back to Church Sunday. So we invite people who may have been members of this church or another church in the past to come back and give it a go. And I suppose it's my job to convince you that it's worth it. Because most people think it isn't. After all, the surveys tell us that most people in our country believe in God, but they never turn up to church. I was doing a funeral service the other day for somebody, and at the end of it someone came up to me and said, oh, the person had real faith. They just never went to church. And that's true of many, many people, isn't it? It's not that they're hostile to the church. It's just they don't really feel they need it. They're glad it's there when they want it, but they're quite happy to ignore it the rest of the time. I think it was Lord Melbourne, a former prime minister of the country, who once said, whilst I cannot be regarded as a pillar of the church, I might be regarded as a buttress, because I support it from the outside. And I guess there are quite a lot of people in that situation. So should the church be more than that? more than just the sort of place we turn to when we're in trouble. Well, according to the Bible, the church, or the people of God, are vital to our health. To the health not just of individual Christians, but actually to the nation as a whole. We have a great responsibility. I quoted these words some weeks ago, but I do so again because I think they are remarkable. This is what somebody said about the local church. They didn't say about us, but it's what they said the local church could be. The local church is the hope of the world. There is nothing like the local church when it is working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving. It heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, 
and the disillusioned. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. It's a wonderful picture, really, of what we can and should be. But, of course, we fell far short of it very, very often. In fact, the reason why so many people fall away from the church is so often the feeling that the church has let them down in some way, maybe when they most needed it. But this is what we should be. And that's why we want to invite people back to become part of us. And in doing that, I turn these, our attention to these verses in the letter to the Hebrews. It's a letter written to a group of believers urging them not to drift away from their church. And the essential argument of the letter is this, the world is a hard place. And if we want to live as Christians in this world, we can't do it on our own because we need one another. And there are three little phrases from our reading today that I want to leave with us. Draw near, hold on, stir up. The first one, draw near. Verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's just been describing how it is that because of what Christ has done in dying on the cross, a door has been opened for us into the very presence of God. It's an extraordinary gift that God gives to us. And he says in the light of that, since we have this new and living way opened up for us, let us draw near to God. And that is the first reason why we want to invite people back to church. It's so that they can draw near to God. See, wouldn't we love to find God? Wouldn't we love to know Him, to be able to stand in His very presence? I guess all of us at some stage would like to. We'd love to know. In fact, not long ago I googled the words finding God. Uh, there were 693 million hits. You can The first one, interesting enough, is finding God on Amazon. Not really surprising, you could find almost everything else there, so why can't you find God there? The second one, exploringgod.com, then lookingforgod.com, findgod.com, findinggod.org. There's a true or false quiz to see if you cut the mustard. You can find God outdoors. You can find God in cyberspace. You can find God on a mobile phone. You can find God on YouTube. You can find God in married life. You can find God on the metro. You can find God through marketing. It's interesting ones here. You can find God with biocomplexity. You can find God in the compost pile. You can find God in the dark on the dance floor. Finding God and ditching vampires is another one. The mind boggles, doesn't it? You begin to wonder if there's anywhere left where you can't find God. You can find God in five, five steps. You can find God in four steps. You can find God in two minutes. Well, nobody could ever complain that they haven't been told. And yet, how many people have actually found him? The fact is that for centuries, religion has been about finding God, trying to find him, trying to please him, trying to live up to him in some way, trying to win his approval. And people have done all sorts of things, engaged in all sorts of disciplines, fasting, praying, beating themselves in an attempt to find him. But the truth is we can't of ourselves find God. We cannot get through to him on our own. Now in the light of that, just see how extraordinary these words are. Verse 19, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. We can come into God's very presence. Let us draw near to him with a sincere heart. 
It's an extraordinary thing that we are able to come into the very presence of the living God. I wonder if we realize how extraordinary that is. See, in the Old Testament, people knew they couldn't get near to God. He was far too holy, far too perfect, far too dazzling for them to bear his presence. And the whole of their worship was an explanation of that idea. So if you went to the temple to worship, you'd have to go through a whole variety of courts. The closer you came to the temple building itself, the less people were allowed in. So you had the court of the Gentiles, and then they could go no further. The court of the Israelites, the court of the priests. Then when you came to the building itself, there was the holy place where only a select few could enter. And finally, there was the holy of holies right at the very end, the most sacred place in all Judaism, where only one man, the high priest, could enter one day a year on the day of atonement. Everybody else was locked out. And there was a great curtain separating off the Holy of Holies. 30 feet high, very, very thick. And you could not get through. You see what that tells you? It says you're not good enough. You're not holy enough to get into the presence of God. And that is true of all of us. Every single one of us. None of us is holy enough or good enough or perfect enough to get into the presence of God. But, you may remember what happened when the Lord Jesus died on the cross. Do you remember how we're told at the moment of his death that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom? The doorway was open and suddenly people had access into the presence of God himself. We, each one of us, can go and meet with the living God. We can know him. We can find him. And that's the first reason why we want to invite people back into church is so they can find God. Because the door is open for us now. Every single one of us can find him if we really want to. That's the message of the Bible. That we can come into God's presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. This new and living way, as the writer puts it. So draw near. First thing. Second, hold on. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. It's one thing to begin to follow Christ. It's quite another to keep going. It's very hard to keep going. And there are many who give up. Perhaps some of us are here today because at some stage we gave up. We all know the temptation. And that's why the writer talks of the need to hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, not to let go. And we need one another to help us in that if we're to hold on to the hope that God gives us in Christ. There's a very poignant story in, in John chapter 6 where Jesus has been teaching to crowds of people. And he's been saying some very hard things and people are beginning to have doubts. They're beginning to wonder. And we're told that they start to drift away. And Jesus watches them. He doesn't tell them to stop. He just watches them go. And then he turns to his closest friends and he says to them, are you going as well? Are you going to leave? Are you going to give up? And Peter says a very interesting thing. He says this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In some ways, it's a pretty grudging response, isn't it? Pretty unenthusiastic. He's saying, in effect, well, we'd like to, but we can't think of anywhere else to go. But on another level, they're very, very wise words. Peter is saying this, Master, you hold the key to eternity. You have the words of eternal life. How can we possibly go anywhere else? See, people today chase all sorts of things, don't they? Money, fame, happiness, success, possessions, things. Yet in the end, we have to leave all of them behind. 
in the end they're useless because they can never give us eternity. The Beatles used to sing, money can't buy you love. Well, it can't buy you eternity either. And Peter knew that. As someone put it, money can buy you everything but happiness. Money can get you anywhere but heaven. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews says, hold on. This is the true hope. Hold unswervingly to it. It is your only hope. So I've lost count of the number of times I've stood in this pulpit at someone or other's funeral and spoken knowing that the deceased didn't have that hope, didn't know what it was about. You see, it is a priceless hope. So if we find it, let's hold on to it, hold unswervingly to it. And that is the second reason for making the church a part of your life. It will help you to hold on to the greatest hope of all. On our own, we couldn't do it. But together with God's grace, it is possible. Let us draw near. Let us hold on. And then finally, let us stir up, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. I think stir up was the revised standard version. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we're to keep going, the key is to helping one another. Meeting together. I always remember, whenever I read these verses, actually, I remember uh, a young lad I was talking to who was at school, and he was a Christian, but he was struggling. And he was kind of drifting. And we talked about it, and I said, look, there's a, there's a really good verse I'd love to show you in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let us not give up meeting together, but let us encourage one another. I knew, you see, he wasn't really having any Christian fellowship. And where he was, the Christian group was called the meeting. Just so happened that it was a a particularly original name to call it, but it was called The Meeting. And anyway, I said, look, why don't we look at this verse, Hebrews 10.25. And he had a different translation. He had the New English Bible. So I said, look, you know, why don't you read it for me? So he got out his Bible. He read, let us not stay away from the meeting. And you could see his face. He was like, this is just for me. Now, I had no idea the New English Bible said The Meeting. I didn't have any idea that his school group was called The Meeting. But it touched him because he suddenly saw the point that if he wanted to keep going as a Christian then he needed Christian fellowship for his own encouragement and for other people's encouragement as well and this is a constant theme in the letter to the Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 and 13 see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God and what is his answer he then says but encourage one another every day as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See, I'm always struck by the fact the writer says that we are to encourage each other every single day. We need each other's encouragement every day. That's why we meet together. I think if we're honest, many of us tend to treat church in the same way we do our other leisure activities. We will do it if there's nothing better to do, if we don't get a better offer. And we do that because we don't think it's that important. And yet meeting together to encourage one another is so important to the writer of the Hebrews that we should do it every day. Because if we don't, not only do we suffer, but everybody else suffers as well. Now the Greek word for encourage is the word parakalia, which means literally call alongside. It presumes that its object is under pressure, fearful, weak, overwhelmed or whatever. And it means to strengthen by giving appropriate aid. The old Greek authors, I'm told, used to describe military reinforcements during battles with this same word. 
And biblical encouragement assumes that as Christians we do live under pressure. Not just the normal pressures of everyday life in a broken world, but also the specific pressures of serving Christ in a spiritual hostile environment. And therefore we need to be spiritually strengthened on a regular basis. How? By mutual encouragement. By meeting together. And when we encourage people, you see it involves communicating God's truth and hope in such a way that others are able to live to Christ more effectively. And Jesus wants us as his followers, followers to be a community that constantly encourages each other. It's one of the most powerful features of a Christian community, that we can all be encouragers. And yet, if we're honest, many of us are, are moaners, aren't we? Whingers, always complaining. And they're miserable to be around. We have them in every group of people. We have them in churches as well. But when we encourage, not only do we build others up, it makes a huge difference to our own spiritual growth. So let's be encouragers and not whingers. And the writer says it's up to each one of us. We are all called to encourage one another. We're all called to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. We can all do it. See, there's some people in church who are wonderful encouragers. They always lift your heart and your soul. There are others who aren't. You slightly dread getting a call from them or an email for fear of what they might say. Well, let's commit ourselves to being encouragers, to stirring up one another. So those are three reasons why we're inviting you back to church today. One, to help you draw near to God. Two, to help you hold on to your hope. Three, so that you can be encouraged, but also that you can encourage others yourself. Because we can all do that. We can all be encouragers. I just want to finish with a little story about an elderly widow who was very eager to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, but she was very restricted in her activities. She prayed about this and thought about this, and she realized that she had one gift. She could play the piano. And she realized that she could bring blessing to others by playing the piano for them. So she placed a small ad in her local newspaper. Pianist will play hymns by phone daily for those who are sick and despondent. The service is free. The notice included the number to dial. When people called, she asked, what hymn would you like me to play? Within her few, a few months, her playing had brought cheer to hundreds and hundreds of people. Many of them freely poured out their hearts to her, and she was able to help and encourage them. How? Just by playing hymns over the phone. Well, it seems a bit quaint now, doesn't it? But isn't it wonderful that we can do that? That's what she did. What can we do today to encourage each other, to encourage someone else? Let's draw near, let's hold on, and let's stir up to love and good works. Why don't we pray, and then we'll sing our final hymn together. Let's pray.